Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Before starting the podcast, I did want to address one major change to the show. I know I mentioned in the past about adding sponsorships or ads to the podcast. I've avoided it to date, but with rising costs and changes to the economy, it's now something I've had to revisit. Basically, moving forward, there'll be one to two short ads now at the beginning of the podcast. We will also be adding the Patreon again with a subscription-based model where for $5 a month, you can get a link to commercial-free version as well as other perks. Please reach out directly if you have any questions, and I guarantee the podcast content will always be free and accessible. Anyway, back to today's show. Our guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. I wanted to get Jeff, our very first podcast guest and old friend, back on the show. Jeff is the author of the popular teaming series, Teaming with Microbes, Teaming with Nutrients, Teaming with Fungi, and now his new book, Teaming with Bacteria, which he joins us today to discuss. He also has a book called DIY Autoflowering Cannabis, which we discussed in an earlier interview. Jeff is an extremely well-respected and popular National Garden writer. He is the former president of the Garden Writers of America. Jeff has been a good friend now for over a decade and is a wonderful advocate for organic gardening, compost teas, and the microbes in our soil. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. Hey, I am excited. Uh, you know, you, you you know, I have a relationship with you and your and your family, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Awesome, I really appreciate it. I, I always love talking to you. I think this is your third time now on the podcast. You're one of my most uh, yeah, yeah. frequented guests. Yeah, I think it is. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about uh, your new book and some of the new research you've come across. Um, yeah, why don't you take it away? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, uh, you and I were steeped in, in the soil food web, uh, and, I, and I wrote a book about that called Teaming with Microbes, and that book came out in 2006. And, and essentially, it, it was a codification of what we all learned from Dr. Elaine uh, Ingham, who's, of course, the guru of the soil food web. And, and basically, the system, as everybody probably knows, operates off of the exudates that are produced with photosynthetic energy by the plant. The plant designs those exudates, drips them out into the rhizosphere, uh, and they attract bacteria and fungi that need the carbon that are in those exudates. Uh, remember, Elaine called them uh, cook, cake, cake and cookies, uh, you know, sugars, and uh, but there's a lot of carbon in them, and that's that's what these non-photosynthesizing organisms need. And so they, they, they're very happy there in the rhizosphere, uh, but they are uh, attractant to their own prey, or uh, things that eat them, uh, and those are nematodes and protozoa. And so the nematodes and protozoa eat the uh, bacteria and eat the fungi. And as a result, there are, uh, they, they also need carbon. You and I need carbon. Of course, you know, everybody operates off of carbon. But they don't need everything that's in the, in the bacteria or in the fungi. And so uh, that excess uh, is, is plant nutrient and it's in plant usable form. It has a charge on it. The microbes essentially put a charge on these excess nutrient, uh, nutrients, I guess we'll call it that, uh, and they're able to move from the soil into the plant. And of course, teeming with nutrients is a book I wrote that talks about 
how that happens and, and how they get in the plant and what happens inside the plant, uh, you know, kind of a fit together. Uh, and so that, that, that was the soil food web. I think at that time in 2006, I had a paragraph on mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and, and it wasn't until 2000, I revised the book in 2011 to add a chapter about mycorrhizal fungi, which are these specialized fungi that are attracted to the plant by the plant, uh, exudates. The plant signals the mycorrhizal fungi that it's okay to enter the plant. And it does enter the plant in, in the, uh, root system in the meristem, uh, area. And, and, and they, the, the fungi enters in between the, the, the root cells and, and there's a transfer of exudates and goodies, uh, from, from the soil, uh, by the fungi. And so this was a very important addition to the soil food web. Well, it turns out that in 2016, no, let me go back, 2010, uh, a group in Australia, and unfortunately, and I really just gotta learn how to pronounce this woman's name, uh, a wonderful woman who has a hyphenated name, Shutter Longheim, uh, and her, and her team, uh, 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 in Australia, discovered that some of these bacteria that are attracted by those exudates to that to that rhizosphere area, actually enter into the meristem cells. Now, this had never really been seen before, or if it had been seen before, the implications of what it was uh, was not fully understood. And so, so this group studied this, and they they termed it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it the American pronunciation: rhizophagy, R-H-I-Z-O. Rhizo, of course, meaning root, and phagy meaning eating, so root eating. And it appeared uh, they weren't quite positive what was going on, that, the, that perhaps the cell was opening up, engulfing uh, bacteria, and then closing uh, up again. Um, and, and, and so that was why they were inside there. They didn't really study about what was going on, uh, and apparently their grant funding must have run out. Uh, and so it languished. Now I remember getting a note from one of my friends who read about this, uh, and, and I, and I read the note and it just said rhizofasci. I had no idea what it was until I ran into a gentleman who's a professor at Rutgers University named Dr. James White. And what Dr. James White and his, uh, students are, are, are have, were able to do, they could trace what was going on with those bacteria, how they got in, what was happening with them, and what they discovered was beyond astounding and changes the picture of the soil food web uh, so, that, so that if you don't understand rhizophagy, you, you, you're not going to have the full picture of how to operate uh, in a soil food web situation. In other words, how to grow your plants properly so that you are teeming with the microbes and the soil food web is helping you. And so I think what I probably should do with your permission is describe the rhizophagy cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah, that sounds great. Why don't we, uh, why don't we start there? Oh, okay. We will do so. Uh, I, I wish we were doing this, uh, you know, with a super, uh, screen in front of us because the photographs of this cycle are absolutely phenomenal. And in, in the book, I've got a lot of them. Uh, you should be able to find some of these on the web. Uh, before I begin, I, I, I think I, I, I want to point out that bacteria are something that we don't study. 
Uh, they're too small to really see. They're, they're, you know, 90 times, 90 times smaller than a hair. Uh, they're just tiny, but they're everywhere. And so as a consequence, we really, you know, when I say the word bacteria, people think of, you know, like a, like a car in a driveway. Uh, but when I say that's a bacterioma. When I say bacteria, you should be thinking of a, you know, the uh, New York City's biggest airport parking lot and all of those cars are bacteriums uh, to that form bacteria and they're everywhere and and you should immediately after listening to this podcast google uh, uh bacteria head of a pin and you'll see some unbelievable pictures and, and just last week there was an award given to a picture of a and you can google this too a single tongue cell surrounded by bacteria and you'll get a feeling for the tininess and the multitude of these organisms that multiply every 20 minutes on average. They are just phenomenal. And, and a part of the book deals with bacteria, obviously, and describes them and how they operate and all that kind of good stuff. All right. Anyway, so now we've got these, these exudate attracted fungi and bacteria that are up there uh, in the rhizosphere area. And some of these bacteria, instead of being eaten, they smell a popcorn smell, a buttered popcorn smell. It's butyric acid. It's the same stuff that's in your stomach, and if you get too much butyric acid together, it smells rancid, and if you get a tremendous amount of butyric acid together, it smells like vomit. But at this stage, down at the rhizosphere level, they're smelling buttered popcorn in my imagination, and it causes them, because they're living in a little bacterial slime, to think that there's an area outside of their home slime that they can move to where they'll have a better opportunity to survive, to eat, to multiply, without having to deal with all the other people in the slime or other bacteria in the slime. So they, they push against the smell, and it turns out that what they're doing is moving through the meristem, root meristem cell walls. The root meristem cells are very, uh, they're brand new. They have very thin cell walls. They're very immature cells. And they, they uh, are, are invaded by these bacteria who enter into a space between the cell wall and the membrane that holds the cytoplasm in the cell. The cytoplasm, the place where the, all the organelles are held, the nucleus, the, the chloroplast, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the way I liken this is to a tofu container. So you have a white tofu container. That's the cell wall of the, of the plant, the meristem cell wall, very thin. And the bacteria go through there. They're very small, so they go through there. And they end up in that watery area that's in a tofu packet. That's called the periplasmic space. And then you've got the tofu. Uh, some of them actually enter into the tofu. That's the cytoplasm membrane uh, representation. So they're in this periplasmic space. And the plant goes, oh, uh, I just got invaded by bacteria. Even though I invited them in, I, I need to make sure that they're not going to harm me. And so the plant sprays the bacteria with a superoxide which is very strong and has the result of stripping off the cell walls of the bacteria. So these are now what we call L-forms. They have no cell walls, 
And the material that was in their cell walls is absorbed by the plant, contains micronutrients, metals, some really neat things, and the plant uses them as plant nutrients. Internally, they're internal and they're absorbed internally and, they, and they're used internally, obviously. Then the bacteria goes, whoa, wait a minute, we don't like this. And so the bacteria uses, uh, produces an antioxidant to reduce the superoxide's ability to destroy the cell walls of the, of the bacteria. And this turns out to be nitrite. Nitrite is then converted as a result of a series of chemical reactions uh, in the periplasmic space, some of which involve the plant, into nitrate. And the nitrate is plant usable and it's absorbed by the plant as well. Up to 30% of the nitrate, of nitrogen that a plant can receive can be through this cycle. Now, if that wasn't enough, it turns out that these little guys, they're breeding and they're multiplying every 20 minutes. And uh, as they multiply, they're also doing something else. They're producing a phytohormone, a plant hormone that we call ethylene. And ethylene causes the meristem cell to grow. So here you have these invading bacteria. They no longer have a cell wall. They're multiplying. And as they multiply, they form these funny little balls. They look like beach balls, volleyballs, soccer balls maybe. Uh, they have four maybe six uh, uh, wallless bacteria stuck together. And they're circulated around this periplasmic space, producing ethylene, which is also circulated, causing the meristem cell to grow. Then they get so plentiful that they end up getting trapped against the cell wall of the plant, the meristem cell wall, where the ethylene is produced in a concentrated area because it, it doesn't get cycled. And that ethylene causes the meristem cell wall to form a tube. You and I know this tube to be a hair, a root hair. But this tube actually begins to fill up with these bacteria. And as they get more and more in, the root grows, you're getting more ethylene production and the root hair grows uh, and it grows longer. The bacteria are literally expelled by a periplasmic liquid tidal wave out of the root hair tip into the soil where they go back and they regrow their cell walls and eventually, two or three days later, go back into a new meristem cell and repeat the trip. And they're not just blown out once. Those, as that root hair grows, there can be four or five of these explosions of bacteria that end up back into the soil, some of which obviously end up getting eaten, and they're, they're part of what I, I like to call the, you know, the, the soil-mediated system where they travel into the but some of them go back and do the trip again. It's just simply incredible. So what we've got, essentially, and I'm going to refine this just a little bit more in a minute or two, uh, what we've got is the Dr. Lane model that you and I, you know, breastfed on, if I can use that term, uh, you know, that model is a farming model. 
uh, the plant's a farmer. It's throwing out the exudates. It's, uh, the, it's helping the, the it's fertilizing the, the, the bacteria and the, the, proto, the protozoa and everything. It's all, and then they end up, you know, taking in the, the resultant crop. Mm-hmm. What we've got in this rhizophagy cycle is a ranching situation where the, the sheep are brought into the barn. They're sheared. We use the wool. We eat a couple of lamb chops because what the heck, they're there. Uh, and then we put them out in the pasture again to regrow their wool. And then they, the, the following season, we take them back in again and we take the wool off the, off the sheep again. It's just a, it's so we've got a ranching situation and we've got a farming situation, both of which are part of the soil food web. And, and so now we've got a much more complete picture of, of how that plant gets its nutrients. If it's getting 30 or, or 40% of its nutrients uh, from these endophytic bacteria, endophytes meaning uh, that uh, they live inside the plant for part of their lives, then this is a major, major new discovery. And I say it makes teeming with bacteria equally as important as the original book, Teeming with Microbes. Because this is such an important thing that's going on. And the implications of it, both in the future and, and for right now, are stunning and usable. So we'll certainly, I'm sure, be talking about that. Any questions about me so far, my stuff so far? Well, so I've, I've read the book. Um, yeah. Listening to your explanation right now is actually really helpful. So if you're someone that uh has has read the book and then listens to this i think that's actually not a bad direction to go because you break it down um really well your explanation i love that analogy um so i'm going to try and put into my own words to simplify it even further and please correct me where i screw it up because i'm still learning (laughs) and processing all of Mm -hmm. this uh, myself so basically we have a, a cycle uh where these bacteria specific bacteria are going into the the meristematic tissue or the meristem which is the all the new undifferentiated tissue that most people are familiar with the apical meristem where you have you know we're growing all of our new growth is is based around meristematic tissue so it's like really the exciting place on plants new root tips new leaves and very thin walls very thin walls because they're brand new they're brand new cells so yeah so they become more specialized uh as Yes. as the plant needs yes. them. Um, but they just start as really like a blank canvas of a cell is how I've always thought of them. So it's kind of right. where all the action's happening. And now you're adding in this thing we didn't even know about, which is that there's all these bacteria that, that work their way in, lose their, their, their cell wall or their wall, what you referred to there, um, while they're inside. Yeah, they, have a cell wall. they do have a cell wall. Okay, they lose yeah. that wall, which is pretty amazing. Um, and I have trouble visualizing this, but then as they complete that cycle, then they're going back out, regaining that wall and then starting the process over again. Yep. And, yep. And then it's, it's a, well, I just want to ask, so then you mentioned nitrogen, <laughs> sorry, uh, you mentioned nitrogen yeah. as being the primary nutrient in this it's specifically nitrite converting to nitrates. Are there other nutrients that we know about that oh, are yeah. happening in this uh, Absolutely, equation? absolutely. I mean, depending on whether it's a gram-positive or a gram-negative cell wall, 
the material that makes those cell walls is absorbed. And, and so I don't have the list in front of me, but, but it's a, it's an interesting list of things. Amino, they, you know, there are, there are, they are amino acids and other things. And, and, and so there's quite a few nutrients that are available, uh, by the rhizophagy cycle, which means, you know, I guess there's really sort of two questions. I, I'll let you continue, but you know, why would a bacteria do this, and why would a plant let the bacteria do this? I mean, you know, the bacteria is an enemy of the plant in many instances, and the plant knows that and ha and has defensive mechanisms to, to keep bacteria out. That RO in particular can be can be strengthened. And incidentally, when it sprays that RO, it has the capability of removing its own cell wall, which is very thin, and so it has to strengthen itself in order to be able to handle the rhizophagy cycle. And that strengthening lasts throughout the life of the plant. So again, the implications are just <laughs> mind-boggling. But yeah, there's there there are a, a series, I don't know, six, seven, eight, eight nutrients that actually get 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 to get into the plant as a result of the rhizophagy cycle. And there's a bunch of different strains of endophytic bacteria. This isn't just one particular one. Yeah, this is, and that's quite a few. Yeah, yeah and that's a very uh, important point to make. If I if I can just spend thirty seconds and explain that there are other kinds of endophytic bacteria that enter the plant uh, through branching in the in the in the root system as it branches. There are little cracks in there, and they sneak in. Uh, they come in through stomata. Uh, you know, they, they sneak in through wounds and, 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 and things like growth holes and things like that. And so, so they, they're in the plant. Now, with regard to cannabis, this is just too stunning and too amazing. What some of the studies have shown is that the mix in the soil of bacteria that become endophytic in or are capable of becoming endophytic bacteria, either going through the rhizophagy cycle or going into the plant to do other stuff. It's always basically the same. But once you get inside the plant and categorize the endophytic bacteria that are in that plant, they differ from strain to strain. Holy crow. This is the quote terror that we have been looking for. Uh, it's the bacteria. There's, the, you know, the, 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 uh, let's pick a string, you know, Girl Scout cookies has, has one kind of endophytic bacteria that's different from, uh, you know, naming another, another strain, you know, it's just incredible. So, so now we're going to be able to start doing some research. Uh, and, and develop strains in different different kinds of ways. This is really big news for cannabis growers. Um, and, and these studies will become more and more plentiful as President Biden's initiative seeks a home. <laughs> We're almost there. We've legalized cannabis where we can do the research that we need to be doing in order to get the very best of best. So, uh, phew, it's just incredible. Now, these endophytes, when they go in the plant, produce phytohormones. So they've got the capability of producing auxins and doing everything that an auxin does because they're real auxins or gibberellic acid. Ethylene is a uh, 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 phytohormone. You've got, you've got about six or seven phytohormones that are produced by these bacteria and they, they help the plant 
do all sorts of things. And so the other reason why a plant might let an endophytic bacteria survive inside itself is because the plant is getting helped by that endophytic bacteria, uh, that they're using those phytohormones. Again, a, a, a simply a, a stunning implication when you consider that all of what I call, uh, uh, the, let's just call them the big bad agro guys, what are they studying right now? They're studying the capability of bacteria, endophytic bacteria, and, and, and some fungi to produce nitrogen in the plant. That's what, that's what we have in the rhizophagy cycle. That's nitrogen fixation, just like in rhizobia, although it's not quite the same system, but it's internal nitrogen fixation. Holy crow, isn't this what we need? A wheat plant that's capable of producing its own nitrogen by hosting the right kinds of bacteria. Yes, and that's what everybody, that's the holy grail of agriculture these days, and we're getting there. And part of it is because of the rhizophagic cycle, and part of it is because of uh, this, this uh, endophytic uh, phenomena that, we, that we, we're, we're stumbling on and we're beginning to figure out how to use. So where is the bacteria getting the, the nitrogen in the first place? Uh, the, it's pulling it out of the air. So, but not you all know, of so, these so are, atmos- are, are necessarily um, rhizobacteria, correct? That's, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and that's, the, that's one of the stunning things about this. Uh, so in a rhizobia situation, what you've got is a bacteria that's attracted literally to a root hair. How interesting. Uh, the root hair curls around the bacteria. Uh, these bacteria convert themselves into bacterioids. It's a little bit of similarity, doesn't it? You know, it's sort of interesting. So it finds itself inside the plant in a different format. And if there's a system whereby the oxygen level can be reduced, they are capable of producing nitrogen from the air, and they use that nitrogen to live. It it resides in that nodule. A little bit of it leaks out into the soil. When the plant dies, that nitrogen is released back into the soil. So in this situation, you know, we've got these endophytic bacteria inside the plant producing nitrogen just from the air. Now, with regard to cannabis, it becomes even more interesting. Uh, that paper I sent you this morning by Dr. James White blew my socks off because it, it proposes a system whereby there's an explanation for what's going on inside glandular trichomes. And if there's anything that a, a cannabis grower is interested in, it's glandular trichomes. And so what what the theory is now, and incidentally, uh, in the book, uh, I, I, I alluded to a lot of this stuff, but the book was written three years ago, believe it or not. You know, it goes through the editing process and then the printing process, blah, blah, blah. So it takes a while to get a book out. So at the time, these papers had not been completed. Uh, and so I was theorizing what they would show. But now, Dr. Uh, you know, Dr. White and his students have demonstrated enough to come up with a pretty solid theory that that the the there is bacteria in these trichomes because originally people were beginning to think that these trichomes look like root hairs. Why isn't you know is there the same kind of nitrogen fixation activity in them that there is in root hairs? It turns out there's not quite as much. 
but there is nitrogen fixation going on. The bacteria that are in these trichomes turn out to have to be in a situation where there is a oxygen-deprived situation in order to fix the nitrogen, and what deprives them of oxygen is being bombarded by, are you ready for this, cannabinoids. Holy crow. Being bombarded onto these bacteria so that they end up producing nitrogen in in the trichomes but what gets produced as a byproduct is what people grow cannabis for wow so when i say this is an important book in terms of its amendment to dr elaine soil food web uh uh you know uh, this is also an amendment to anything you've been thinking about with regard to cannabis and, and, and it goes even further because the way these bacteria uh, uh, survive from generation of plant to generation of, of plant is through the lead, uh, through the seeds. They get into the seed uh, situation. They get into the flower. Uh, they get caught up when, this, when the flower forms uh, the, the uh, turgid around, around the, the, the embryo situation, and, and they're inside, some of them, uh, right up by the embryo, some of them uh, probably in the embryo, Dr. White points out, uh, bunches of them in the seed coat itself and a bunches of them just inside the seed coat. And these are the bacteria that jump out into the soil once you germinate the plant or the seed and start the process of providing the right rhizophagy and endophytic bacteria for the plant. Holy crow. All these years, all oh, so many cannabis growers have been sterilizing their seeds. Whoa. <laughs> oh, you know, they haven't been fortunately able to fully sterilize their seeds because it's not that easy to do. Uh, but they've been taking some of the important bacteria out of the system and then, you know, probably wondering why they're getting powdery mildew, et cetera, et cetera, because these bacteria do all the things that, Dr. Elaine explained, you know, they produce antibiotics. They have, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of things. They they go out and create iron and minerals in the soil and uh, metals and bring them into the plant. And we plant things in paper towels. How about that paper towel germination process? It's in my cannabis book, the autoflowering cannabis. Yeah, well, you know what? You better be planting that paper towel piece in the soil as well, because you've got bacteria that jumped off the seed onto the paper towel. You want that in the soil. Uh, you know, all the advice that you've gotten over the years about not going from me, uh, you know, as a result of what I'm gleaning from Dr. Elaine, you know, not throwing away soil unless you've got a terrible root problem, because that soil contains exudates. Well, it also contains the bacteria that the cannabis needs, and it contains probably the right bacteria from previous grows uh, that are that are either dormant or in there waiting for you to hey, give them exudate so that they can help that plant become the best cannabis plant it possibly can. This is important stuff, and it's and it's it, it, it goes one step further, and then I'll then I'll I'll stop for a second and take a deep breath in. There are chemicals, uh, not chemicals, bacteria that people are now capable of buying. Uh, and that some of the grocery stores are beginning to carry, uh, aso, aso, uh, I'm so terrible at pronouncing these, azospirillium, for example, 
Um, there are a couple of bacillus that people are using. You know, we already use cover crops. It's kind of interesting. Uh, um, and the reason we do that is because they, they fix nitrogen and put the nitrogen in the soil. Uh, so, so all of this ties together. Uh, you know, God bless Dr. Elaine and God bless, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dr. White because they really, they really are geniuses for, for codifying all of this stuff. None of this stuff is stuff I invented. All I do is report it. So. That, that's a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. I don't know where to start. <laughs> Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and it's a little bit, um, it goes back a little bit to what you're talking about earlier though, is so inside of the plant, we have all these endophytes and, and, and like you mentioned, it's a, right. an endophytes and endosymbion, I guess, something that lives within the plant that's beneficial. They're right. both, they're both benefiting from the relationship. Um, and that that's could correct. be a bacteria. It could be fungi. Uh, it could also be archaea. Um, could be a virus. A virus. Could be a virus. Yeah. Micro eukaryote. There's all these things inside that are going on. You know, we're not right. existing in a vacuum is essentially what you're getting at. Um, right. How much of what you're talking about applies to archaea as well as bacteria? Are you differentiating between the two or do they just have very similar functions um, to where you it's... You know, that's an excellent, ex excellent question. I don't know. Uh, and I will try to find out. I've never seen any references to archaea in this regard, but, uh, you know, how do you separate the two? You know, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very interesting question. It, it seems to me that they clearly have a cell wall, even though it's a little different than the cell wall of a bacteria, uh, that would contain nutrients that would be useful to the plant. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think they produce nitrogen fixation. I don't think they're capable of nitrogen fixing. They are part of the process of nitrogen fixation uh, in, 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 in soils uh, elsewhere. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm going to have to take a look at it. And we'll have to do a whole other show on it. <laughs> it might be another book, huh? Yeah. Oh, uh, God, I, you know, another book. <laughs> you say that every time, and then you always end up getting excited and writing another book. So <laughs> I feel well, like it's only, coming. Only when there's something something that comes forward that, you know, that adds to this thing that Dr. Lane infected us with. You know, I mean, I, if you once you become a soil food webber, you're stuck. Because uh, you can't go back. You know, you can't deny the science that exists out there. You can only improve on it, and that's what happens. And uh, and so we've become better and better at this. It's really something, really something. Yeah, I mean, I I started, I started with you and, and Dr. Ingham in this sort of this journey through meeting you both through yeah. my father, um, as you know, decades ago, yeah. and yeah. Uh, that's really where I began. And this this whole idea, you know. These were your words, like the the plants putting out all these exudates. The plant controls it. You had a wonderful uh, graphic that went with it, and you'd have a picture of a bush. Yeah. And you're like, if the plant yeah. wants Japanese food, it would select, you know, right, for the exudates right, for that. Right, and then right, you right. have a picture of some Japanese people would show up in the photos. It, it was very entertaining, but yeah. it really like drove that idea home. And so it's like it's more what you're saying now is we still have that process going on. We still have that the nutrient cycling, that microbial loop. Um, Absolutely. going on but on top of it we also have these endophytes the, the the fungi the bacteria the archaea circling inside the plant infecting into the plant in and in also a symbiotic way 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I, I, I look at it is that there's three basic ways that a plant takes its nutrient in via the soil food web system. Uh, and the, the, the first way is this soil mediated, uh, movement. You know, the stuff is dumped into the soil and it finds its way into the plant. Uh, the second way is the mycorrhizal, uh, situation where the mycorrhizal fungi takes the nutrients that are in the soil, sometimes actually converts and then brings them into the plant. And then the third way is this rhizophasy cycle. Uh, there may be fourth and fifth and sixth ways. I don't know. Uh, but so far there are these three ways. Um, they are all based on the 2006 model, which is you've got this pool of bacteria and fungi that are attracted to the plant by the exudates. Uh, and, and it, so they, they just, they, they fit. Um, there could be other stuff. I don't know what they would, what it would be. <laughs> well, there's also just straight osmosis where the plant will just take in. Well, that's, the, yeah, and that's the plant. That's the plant-mediated system. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the, so, the soil-mediated system. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't even know if that's the right word. I, you know, you, you got to come up with these things. To <laughs> figure, figure it all out. It's, it's, it's such new stuff. But, but again, this is really important stuff for people to understand. It's, and, and, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't change the soil. You still don't rototill. For, you know, now that when I used to say the bacteria end up, you know, uh, that are in the root zone end up at the top or in the bottom and, you know, they're all displaced. Well, you know, that is the same thing, whether they're rhizophasy bacteria or whether they're just rhizosphere bacteria. So you don't rototill, uh, you know, you compost tea might have a more, a more, uh, ethical, you know, more, uh, understandable reason for working, uh, in some instances and perhaps not in others. Um, the, the addition of, uh, the right kind of mulch in order to make sure that you're fostering good bacteria, uh, is, is still in play. Uh, so nothing, nothing really changes in the soil food web other than the potential uh, of a future where we can tweak the soil food web in ways that we're not capable uh, of doing now. And certainly we're not capable of doing in 2006 when we barely even, I don't think in 2006 there were commercial mycorrhizal fungi. Now there are, uh, you know, that's, that's a heck of a change. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a lot still to learn. Um, yeah. Oh, God, you know, yes. I, I think there's so much we don't understand about what's going on directly under our feet in that plant soil plant microbe interaction right. uh, is, is I heard right, a, right. a soil scientist years ago mentioned that you know he goes you know we know more about what's going on at the bottom of the ocean and on the moon than we do you know directly under our feet and yeah an inch under our feet it's just True. so it's so complex um, and that's so this is where I may differ a little bit in this because sure we, we have we have some camps here around you know soil food web and you have people that believe that um it's all about the microbes and so as long as we're testing the microbes and um taking care of the microbes we're not going to have to deal with disease or fertility or any of those issues all of those things are symptoms of microbial problems um and that's kind of where i would put the soil food web camp now, on the other end, you have sort of the mineral guys, the Albrecht, Solomon um, yeah, yeah. folks, where they're like, 
you know, let's focus on minerals, get the minerals balanced into a form that the plants are going to uh, have optimal fertility. And then all those microbes are just going to show up. Um, I'm kind of like right in the middle there. I don't, I don't think either of them totally agree. (laughs) I want to add the minerals, but then, um, you know, all my behaviors are really towards taking care of these, these microbes in this process. Like you mentioned, you know, limiting tilling, um, reusing soils where we can adding organic matter in the form of compost, um, all, all of these things. Right. Right. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, Albrook makes tremendous sense, and, and obviously it's tied to the microbes. I mean, because plants plants uh, need those microbes uh, to grow, and we know what happens when you take the microbes. For example, in the book I, I discussed this, uh, and Dr. White's shown this a number of times, if you don't have the bacteria, you don't get root hairs. Whoa. <laughs> and the roots don't grow properly. Whoa. And then if you put the, if you, having taken the bacteria out, if you put the bacteria back, you grow, you grow root hairs. Ooh, you know, that's pretty interesting. But what is a mineral? You know, a mineral is a microbe food. Sure. Uh, in the, in, in the right situation. Now, the, you know, when all breaks down is when people don't do it properly and the ratios aren't proper, you know, that's sort of like applying too much chemical fertilizer. Uh, it, 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 it screws up the system. The microbes can't operate. It's not that there aren't any microbes. The, the microbes that like the fertilizer are not necessarily the microbes that like, you know, that the plant likes. And so, you know, I'm with you. I'm right in the middle. I'm right in the middle. I think, I think I've, I, there was a big fight at one point in time because people were yelling at Dr. Elaine Ingham because she apparently or supposedly, and I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, said that if you've got a good soil food web system, you don't need to add any nutrients. Well, I, I, think, sense that the, I think the quote was that all soils contain adequate minerals for growing healthy plants, or it was something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I, I, I can, I'm not sure I can fully comprehend that. <laughs> if that's the right way to put it. But there's no question that if you use uh, uh, things that replace these bacteria, so the, what they call the nitrogen efficiency ratio goes down. Uh, so, so the natural system seems to be the most efficient system. Uh, are minerals part of the natural system? Yes. Whether, whether you go with that quote or don't, the minerals that are in the soil are helpful. And if you don't have those minerals, it doesn't hurt to put them in. It just makes sense to me. But that doesn't mean you, you don't need the microbes, because you do. Absolutely. I, um, I, I just wanted to say, like, we know that biostimulants, and that's just sort of the industry term that I hear for yeah. adding microbes. Um, right. So any of, these, right. any of these products that you mentioned that have bacillus or azospirillium, sure. all of these things, mycorrhizal fungi, these all be called biostimulants. Um, yes. Is, is one of the fastest growing areas of sales and research in agriculture. Yes. Not, not even just specifically right. to cannabis, just agriculture, which is huge, right. like how we grow our food. That's what, right. That's why I say the big, I call them the big evil chemical companies. You know, they're all studying <laughs> this stuff. This is going to be, this stuff replaces chemicals. Uh, because it's natural and it works and you don't have to continually apply. You know, I mean, it's, 
it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and we'll get there because it just makes so much sense. We, we, we forget, no, we don't forget, but a lot of people don't understand that in order to grow the food the way we grow it now with combines and chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, we're destroying our soil system to the point where, where it's, the experts say we got 61, I don't know why they don't say 60, but 61 years of, of harvesting left of soil. Whoa, really? Uh, well, that's because we're not using bacteria that give the soil structure and fungi that tie those little aggregate of slime stuck together, particles together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, everybody's moving this way, and it's, and it's a good thing, I think. Yeah, so one of the things that we see is by, the, by adding you know, specific bacteria, even with so much that we, we don't know, for example, right. um, we see increased growth or disease resistance or whatever the is associated right. with it. And, and some of these things are symbiotic. It's not even uh, the sum of the parts equal, equal themselves. Right. Um, sometimes no, there's a lot of, right. three plus three right. equals nine, we're, we're finding with the way these microbes work together. Um, all that being said, are, are all of these microbes in the, in most soils or media, like would compost contain all of these for the most part? Um, Yeah, this is an interesting, yeah, very interesting question. Great question. Because, you know, you know, you see these studies that say there are about 650 kinds of bacteria that are in all soils around the world, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that's a teeny, teeny, teeny little number. Uh, uh, the the uh, bacteria, uh, I don't know how to put this. Uh, can, can ask the question again yeah, so I can kind of. So essentially what, what I'm getting at is, because uh, I'd heard a statistic that like 99.98% of the, of world soils contain the same bacteria yeah. more or less like they're yeah. they're pretty much everywhere now yeah if that's the case why is it so we're essentially just giving a booster shot when we add these nutrients to give that particular uh strain or species a a jump start or, or an advantage yeah. over other bacteria in the soil that may be innocuous or disease causing or less beneficial is that the way to approach if, it if if you if you believe that all soils have the same bacteria, I'm not sure I believe that, because because it's obvious to me that there are there are bacteria that we you know in the experimentation and in some of these studies they're putting specialized bacteria into different kinds of plants. Well, why do they have to do that? I mean, isn't it in the soil already? And uh, you see where I'm coming from? I mean, they're they're putting in they're looking. Not, not all bacteria will do the same thing in each, in every plant. It's not quite the same as mycorrhizal fungi, which, for lack of a better term, tend to sleep around. One, one, you know, we only can make about eight to 12 mycorrhizal fungi out of the, how many? 350 that there are. But they, but they're able to infect lots of different kinds of plants. One fungi can affect many different kinds of plants. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily so with the bacteria. Uh, that you've got to have the right bacteria. So what, what might help a strawberry plant grow better strawberries, a bacteria, w- might not do the same thing for a wheat plant or a uh, apple tree. Uh, and so you've got to find the right bacteria. 
uh, and it's, it's probably more than one, obviously, uh, to, to feed the, the plant. And so that tends, that tends to point to me that there are different bacteria around the world or in different kinds of soils. And then I think again about, about what I, my understanding of how Dr. Elaine Ingham sort of came upon a lot of this stuff. You know, she collected soils from plants that did fabulous around the world. So if you had a banana plant that did fabulous, this soil from the fabulous, this is the ideal kind of soil you want to have for a banana plant. Well, not all banana plants grow the same around the world, do they? I mean, so, so I don't, I don't know whether I believe that original uh, statement. I guess that's my problem. Well, that's fair. I, you know, I read it a long time ago. It could be. A yeah. Well, an hour. It's, it's worth, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's worth, it's worth looking into because I hear it all the time. Uh, and I just haven't, I just haven't done so. And I think it, it just makes sense to do so. I, well, I almost look at it like we're, we're replacing or adding in sort of like the pro athletes of the microbial world when we add these bacillus species. Um, and they may yeah, be competing. We? I mean, yeah. well, well, I think we yeah. have to be to a certain extent because we can we can do research that shows when we when we work in you know sterile media, and yeah. then you add in these specific strains of bacteria, we get this level of increased plant growth that we w- may not see in a control, which could just be you know either either a sterile environment or yeah, you yeah, know yeah. A, v- a variety of different soils. Right, um, right. We certainly, we certainly goes against again the original statement that you know the ninety nine percent are all the same. Uh, I, you know that doesn't make any sense to me uh, unless we're talking about concentrations. I mean, for example, the Alaska humus that we used to sell. I mean, you know that that stuff was loaded with things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, of course, it also had different minerals too. And 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 frankly, I tend to be a. a uh, more interested in the soil food website than the mineral side. I probably should spend a lot more time. Uh, you know, I am familiar with Albrecht and, uh, but, but, you know, we, we tend to be more soil food web and might have a lot to do with the minerals that supports the soil food web. I don't know. But I do know that individual bacteria are required for individual plants. They don't all work on the same one. This is why I kind of feel though, that like they must be everywhere because we can grow plants in a variety of different conditions in a variety of different soil or soilless media and still have sure. a thriving plant um, without well, trying to select for yeah, a particular yeah. bacteria. So I, I think it's more about like, like I think of viral load, like a bacterial well, load I, in the same yeah, sense. I go, I go back to that 650, you know, I think there's probably a base that all plants have, you know, that all soils have, mm-hmm. and then the other stuff is extra or different. Uh, you know, it's just give a little bit of diversity. Has to be. It has to be. And just, to, I just but want to we'll throw see. this out there so people will get the wrong idea. I'm not a, I'm not a huge Albrecht guy. Um, yeah. I think, I think he, his, his stuff is really interesting, but mm-hmm. I, um, I'm not a fast and true on the mineral balance side either. So I don't, I don't want people to it, walk it, away it from would, this thinking that it would have been interesting had he, had he had some of these microscopes. That, that Elaine had and that Dr. White had, you know, it's be interesting to see. I, I found a guy, incidentally, around the corner from where, from where I stay when I'm in Portland, who has the only storefront electrical microscope. You can go in and get things done right there off the street. Holy crow. And I think he has a conifocal 
uh, microscope as well, so maybe we can see some of these rhizophagic bacteria. Well, that would be fun. I'd come meet you in Portland to, to tour around Yeah, that wouldn't stuff. that be incredible? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll, we'll arrange that. That would be phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Well, again, this book is, uh, you know, I think people need to understand that it, it, can, it changes the picture of the soil food web, uh, but it is not in any way to denigrate, you know, our under, our our pre-rhizophasy cycle understanding of the soil food web. It just adds to it. Uh, I don't see any detraction from it. Uh, in fact, as, as I as I was doing the research, I mean, all the stuff on I call them cetophores. I never know how to pronounce the word. Uh, these these wonderful uh, bacteria that are able to go to to put put out into the soil the ability to create different metals and either bring them into the plant or, or tie them up so that they can't get into the plant and poison the plant. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the ability of some of these bacteria uh, to work with uh, uh, fungi and, 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 and change nitrogen into a usable form and oh my goodness gracious. And then just the bacteria themselves. I'll never believe the five second rule again. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's been pictures, proven wrong unfortunately i wish it was a thing yeah i know and the pictures of them they are the most incredibly beautiful organisms and and because of the of the ability now to use these various microscopy photography you know systems holy crow so when you look at a flagella under you know some of these microscopic pictures I mean, you would swear you're looking at, a, a, you know, the internal parts of an outboard motor. It's not, you know, you see the diagrams of them and, oh, you go, wow, that's really cool. When you see it in working or when you, ah, oh, some of this stuff is just incredible. There's a, in the back of the book, in the appendix, I, I list a website, which most books never do. And I had to really sort of get the publisher to allow me to do it. That shows this root hair growth. Uh, and the root hair oscillating, and you can almost see the new molecules being put into the wall, the root hair as it grows. I mean, it's just the, the stuff that's out there. You can see individual at DNA. Uh, oh, my God, the stuff out there. So, yeah, we live in a terrific world. It's completely different than it was. And I can only imagine, uh, you know, what's coming up next. Only imagine. Well, you had mentioned now that you have a new order that you would suggest that mm -hmm. folks read read your series. Right. Um, right. Why don't you right. can you right. touch on what each book is? Just give a brief synopsis, yeah, sure. and then also sure. in the order that you would suggest reader new readers might tackle them. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I would obviously start with soil. Not obviously. I would start with soil uh, uh, teeming with microbes. Uh, uh, it explains the soil food web. It gives soil food web rules. Uh, but it doesn't include the rise of cycle, and it doesn't include m m more than a paragraph on uh, fungi. So the next book I would read would be Teeming with Bacteria, this one that I just wrote. Uh, and it, it describes the rise of cycle, and it describes the role of endophytic bacteria, the phytohormones, uh, what they do to plants, uh, and, and uh, doesn't have rules, but it does point out some bacteria that work better with different plants. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, teeming with uh, fungi, which is about the mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, 
uh, and how they operate. And then I would read the last one, Teeming with Nutrients, which explains uh, how these nutrients get through the plant membrane and what happens to them once they're inside the plant. And so those are the, those are the four books. Um, they're all available on Amazon. Uh, I think Timber's thinking about putting a, a set together. I hope they are. Um, and I always tell people, that, again, this is not stuff I invented. I didn't write it. I'm not the genius. Don't give me the credit. This is stuff that Dr. Elaine Ingham, Dr. James White, and other really terrific scientists have put together. All I do is try to dumb it down so that I can understand it, and it turns out that some of you are a little bit more intelligent to me, so my dumbed-down version works well for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again, I mean, there's, there's different things in each book about you know that, that you want to experiment and try uh, – to find the right answer for. So, so for example, you asked me about compost. The difference between the bacteria that are in vermicompost is quite similar. It's quite different than thermal compost. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be doing experiments on cannabis plants, since this is a cannabis show, which one's better, which bacteria, or is it a mix of the two? Because you want to get the right bacteria for your plant. So there's a great oh, research project. It's, I feel like it's way too complicated because when you mentioned just vermicompost, my immediate thought is, <laughs> how long did the worms process the material? What species of worms did you use? Um, sure, what were the temperatures sure. well, I, at? What was I, the worms fed? Want, you, like, it could go on and, and on. <laughs> you can, it could go on and on. But, but, but when it ends up at the, you know, when it's gone through the worm five times, Generally, it has one set of bacteria in it, no matter what you start with. Uh, and, and same thing with compost. Not the same thing, but I mean the compost, the base, again, we, I guess we ought to always go back to this. The base is the same uh, for vermicompost, but different than the base for regular thermal compost. Yeah, and I'd say the variability we see in, com in compost commercially is... Well, most of it's oh, not uh, even compost, but um, right. much higher than vermicompost. Exactly. So. Oh, yeah. But, but again, it's very different families of bacteria. Very different. Uh, and, and so as a result, you get different And that, you know, that's an interesting thing that I, I had trouble with. I, you know, we don't study bacteria. We study dinosaurs. And so if I was to write a book on dinosaurs, I could put in scientific names for a lot of different dinosaurs. And because a lot of the readers have been learning about dinosaurs from the time they were teething with their plush toys, you know, all the way through, you know, elementary school, uh, they know dinosaurs, but we don't know bacteria. And the names are not easy. You know, we don't have a uh, you know, a, a, a common name for every bacteria. We have it for some, but not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people shouldn't freak out by the fact that I list the names. Uh, you don't even have to pronounce them or try to pronounce them. By the end of the book, you'll know some of them. But I wanted there to be, a, a you know, a place where they were listed because we already have the database of bacteria. What we don't have is a home instrument that tells us what the RNA or DNA is for that particular bacteria that we can match with that database to tell us what that bacteria is. But we're getting there. And I think in the next five or ten years, we're going to have that. We're going to be able to point the phone at a water 
top-down sample of soil, and it's going to tell us all of the bacteria that are in that soil. I think it's coming. Uh, it's, you know, I know we've got the microbiometer where we can where we can tell biomass changes uh, mm-hmm. using our cell phone. It just makes so much sense for this to happen as well, uh, and and you can see a need for it in a in a, in a really important way. So it's coming. That I would be excited for, where we get a little more differentiation. Yeah, I, I I could see that being a very useful tool. Um, yeah, well, I'm you know I'm not sure we we already have it. We can tell gram positive from gram negative, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we don't you know as gardeners we don't understand what the difference is. Uh, but again, all of these things are going to become clear and important uh, as more and more people study this stuff, and you know as it becomes clear that using chemicals is creating a you know, uh, a bad thing for the global warming. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many reasons for studying this stuff. Uh, you know, it's just there. And they, and they weren't, there. they were there, but we didn't realize they were there back in 2006. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just want to mention as I'm looking through your, your book here, um, there's a lot more in there in regards to bacteria than just the rise oh, yeah. of veggie cycle. Like you talk about how do bacteria communicate? How do they move? How, right, right, you know, right. how do they eat? And so you get to learn some of those things as well. Um, how fast yeah, do they reproduce? I do, right. I do the same thing with the fungi book, you know, because you've got to, you've got to understand what a fungi is or what a bacteria is before you can understand what a rhizite or an endophytic bacteria is. And, 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 what I try to do is give just the uh, the amount of stuff you need to put the story together at the right. You know, it should have it should have been section one bacteria, section two. Okay, rhizophagy endophytes. Now that you know bacteria is what it is, because because that's what it is. But you, you have to know a little chemistry here as well. Uh, you know, how do bacteria talk to themselves? How do they? You know, it's just that they are fascinating creatures, and we need to stop studying dinosaurs. We need to start studying microbes. Uh, and I say it all the time. I ought to start a foundation. Uh, I, I, you know, I ought to have a, a group that's anti-dinosaur, <laughs> uh, you know, so that we stop wasting our time on something that's useless and get into something that's useful. Well, they do have uh, micro-plush stuff animals, I don't know if you've seen those. Yeah, they do. They're beginning to get them, but 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 they do uh, exist. they're not. They were beginning to get a couple of books too. There's a couple of even soil food web books. Uh, so so we're getting there, uh, but we're not quite there yet. It's not it's not taught. I don't think in schools the way dinosaurs. <laughs> now, one thing I want to touch on because you you bring up these commercial applications and commercially right. available products. And I think people get excited for that as rightly they should. Um, I've, I've seen research showing the viability of some of these products. There's the regulation I would say on these sorts right. of things is all over the map. So it's not very well regulated because it's a new industry. So you could be right. buying something that's not what the label says. And I, I unfortunately see this right. all the time. Um, yeah, that's right. So exactly. I just want to warn folks on the, on the flip side of that though, I, I see cannabis growers, especially experiment with nutrients all the time. Um, right. And I don't know why we don't consider doing the same with microbes, you know, set up an experiment in your environment with a control and see how your plants respond to adding one thing in this case, a particular microbe inoc- microbial inoculant. And 
I, I think that's a good way to yeah. approach it because there is so much we sure. don't know and there are so many interactions going on. Um, I think we really have to look at it in a case-by-case basis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there, there's a base that you, that you want. You know, I tell my clients there's a base for living soil. You want to have a good living soil, um, but then, then you want to tweak it. And, and this is one of the ways you can do it. There, you know, and there are some products that we know are inherently unreliable. I don't mean they're bad. They're just unreliable, and you've got to experiment yourself to make sure you get the right one. I mean, you know, mycorrhizal fungi is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some of them don't work. Some of them do work. You gotta, you gotta figure it out. You gotta figure out how to store them and how to take care of them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it gets, it gets a little bit more difficult with bacteria because there's one kind, bacillus, they, they form a, a you know, a, a, a dormant state that you, you can, it has a long shelf life, but most bacteria don't. And so how do you, how do you know whether you're buying it alive? It's, you know, so you've got to be very, very careful. Uh, and, and you got to make sure that you're experimenting yourself. You can't take someone else's word for it unless you're awfully good friends with that person. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've unfortunately people, tried a lot of these sorts of prod- products over the years. Right. And, right. Um, not seeing yeah, quite well, the results I want, but others I've seen amazing results. So, well, that's right. And then, and that's why I like that microbiometer. I don't know. We, 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 coming back to it is because it, it you you can test yourself you can see whether it's working are you increasing your biomass in your soil you know that's almost as good as does the plant look better <laughs> you know you want to know so you take a before you take a couple of afters or during and, and you and you track you know information's power yeah, I, I I struggle with that one a little bit just because I would think if you had a plant disease, it would increase your biomass as well, and that's where I'd love to know like individual Yeah, but, but species. you would know that. You you I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I I've been asked that before. Yeah, but you would know that. You would see the plant being sick. But but you know, if you add uh, I don't I I won't mention a product, but if you add a well-known uh, product uh, that contains phosphorus uh, and bacteria. Uh, <laughs> You can take a test and know whether it's working or not. It's, you know, obviously, if your plant's sick, it doesn't. You can take all the tests you want. It's still a sick plant. But, so I, I, I mean, I don't buy that argument. <laughs> That's fair. I, it's an interesting angle, and I hadn't really approached it from because for me, um, testing biology is you know whether that's sending it into a lab or um, you know the the biometer. I, I'm, I guess I'm a little less interested in it than getting a mineral test because a mineral test allows me to make like quantifiable decisions, actionable decisions about my garden. Whereas I feel like yeah. on the microbe side, I'm going to do all those things already because like you, I'm, I'm an organic guy. I want to take care of my soil. Um, yeah, I know it's a little minor yeah. point of difference that we've, we've no, had for a no, while. We've talked about this before, but... Um, yeah, 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 but 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 it but you know if people say to me, does this product team with microbes? I can tell them. Uh, yes. I couldn't do it before I had the ability to measure. And I think you know you want that mineral test as well. Obviously, you got to have it, but you don't need to take that mineral test every three weeks. You can take a biometer test every three. You know what I mean? I mean, so it's, it's all information. You want all the information you can possibly get, and if you want to, you want to know the pH, which is why it's been added to the. You know, you want to know uh, fungal bacterial. You know, you know, there's lots of things you want to know, and so you you try to find it out the best way you can. But it, but if your plant isn't doing well, 
doesn't it doesn't matter. <laughs> how, how do you account for the changes in uh, microbial growth just based around hydrology? You know, the the water, the moisture or, or levels see, in the soil. Well, you, you know, you, if your plant's not getting proper water, it's not going to grow well. But it's, it's difficult; you can't. But but by the same token, you know, you've got, you've got to just be aware. So you have to be aware of seasonal. So biomass in fall is not the same as biomass in spring. Very different the changes. Uh, and so if you're applying something in the spring to a plant versus uh, fall, you know the biomass difference is going to be or change or measurement yeah. number is going to be different. Uh, you just have to be aware of it. Nothing's perfect. No, for sure. I, I would just I was just thinking I'd want to control for that variable as much as possible. Like maybe yeah, I oh, test absolutely. the day after watering yeah. every time so that I yeah. know that. Because I've seen that your microbial communities will change dramatically. I mean, we know that bacteria can reproduce in 20 minutes, so you can have explosions um, right. quite quickly. So as ways right, to sort right, of right. level that oh, out. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It's just I mean, a think thought. of a, compo- a compost tea, you know. I mean, oh, my God, the bacteria bloom you get, you know. Yeah. Be oh, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to try to be able to identify the kinds of bacteria in various teas uh, and, their, and, and what they might do to, uh, you know, in, to a plant. Not as opposed to, uh, you know, fertilizer type, uh, you know, in other words, not, not as opposed to creating the mediated, soil-mediated bacteria, but to see whether there are any endophytic that end up, you know, there's some implications here. Uh, and, and, and research that can be done, I'm sure. So you brought up compost tea, you know, that's where I started. That's kind of where you started. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was well, having, I, you know, we all started, we all started with Dr. Elaine, you know, I mean, she's the guru. <laughs> so I want to, I want to ask you a question, hear your thoughts on this. So, yeah. Uh, I had a recent discussion with someone who posted an article on compost tea that showed, um, basically overall good disease suppression in in a study. And my sort of initial take is like, hey, that's great, but I don't think we can draw any real conclusions because every batch of compost tea is going to be different. The batch I make today, the batch you make, the batch I make five minutes after the first batch I make is going to be different. So because of that variability, I don't feel like I can really, I, I can really draw any major conclusions around other than, other than the fact that we know that we're adding aerobic bacteria, if we're making it right. correctly. Um, and, and, which and, is, and some humic, and some humics and, and maybe and fulvics. and no, some nitrogen, any, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. we have, um, you know, uh, Linda Chalker Scott, who's very yeah. anti-composty. Um, yeah, I'm not saying anything that she would disagree with right there. Um, she's kind mm-hmm. of built a lot of her career around it. And, and part of the thing is because she cites a lot of research showing that compost tea doesn't work, essentially. And, you know, we could poke holes in that research just as easily as we could, I feel like, poke holes around the research this gentleman was showing with disease suppression. But that being mm-hmm. said, to me, the issue is not so much the research itself, but it's the inherent variability of these micros because it's happening on a scale that's so small that we don't understand that we can't control just because we're at such a, such a macro level. Um, 
I, I think it's one of those things that we really can't study. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, that's always been the problem with compost tea is the variability of the compost. Uh, and, and, and not just variability of the compost, but the way the tea was made. Because they're all made differently. People put in different amounts, different brewers, different, you know, you've got different temperatures, blah, 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 you know, there's all there. Uh, and it's always been a, been a problem. I think the reason why, uh, certainly from my perspective, I was initially excited about compost tea, and I'm still excited about compost tea. I, you know, I don't use it very much anymore because I, I, I've gotten the benefits that I think I got. I think they came from the compost tea. I, you know, again, like you, it's very hard to prove. Um, but I, I, you know, I had a backyard that was so hard painted. I never saw a bird there. There wasn't a worm anywhere. And today, as a result of applying compost tea, holy crow! I mean, the difference is literally night and day. Uh, and 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 I attribute it to the application of compost tea. Um, I've grown cilantro with and without compost tea in the same in the same soils, and I've gotten or and, and in ver, in ver, you know in in uh, uh, non-soil soils. Uh, Perlite type stuff or, or, or vermiculite. And, and I've gotten differences better with the compost tea than not compost tea. Can I fully explain it? No, I can't. I can't. Uh, and there is a dearth of, of, there, there are a dearth of, or is a dearth of studies uh, that say this is the greatest stuff since sliced bread. But again, as you say, a lot of it's got to do with the variability and a lot of it you could pick holes through the, through the studies. I mean, you know, it can, Comparing compost tea uh, in plants where you're using compost, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's giving the plant what the compost tea is. You know, I mean, why is that a good study? So, yeah, I've got, I've got the same questions you've got. Yeah, I think what, I, what I'm looking for in compost tea is I'm applying a consortium. I'm trying to increase my nutrient cycling that farmer model that you talk about. And maybe I'm getting mm -hmm. some more of these endophytes in there too. Um, but I'm, oh, I'm certainly getting, yeah. you know, an increase in bacteria and fungal biomass. We know that. And, yeah. you know, we, you, can, you can throw it under a microscope and literally see the nutrient cycling um, happen with the, you know, protozoa running around and the ciliates eating the bacteria. Right. Um, right. And you, right, and you can right. change the dominance of all of that. I know people talk about this um, by just brewing longer or um, yeah. adding certain food sources. So it, it can change dramatically. A tea at 12 hours is very different than a tea at 24 hours, even with all other yeah. variables the same. So this idea of trying to study it to me is just, it, it's a, it almost feels like a fool's errand. To a certain extent. Well, it's it, yeah. I think sometimes it's an attempt to, to embarrass Dr. Elaine, frankly, you know. Uh, but and, and and I wish people would stop doing that. But 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 again, uh, you know, it's the variability is is there. Uh, many of us have had some very interesting uh, uh, results using compost tea, uh, but 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 some of us maybe didn't appreciate back then. You know, dumping compost tea onto a plant, you know, depending on how you do it, uh, can can apply tremendous numbers of microbes or it can be like putting a, you know, a dropper full of, uh, of, of compost tea into an ocean. Uh, what impact does it have? So it also depends on the receiving area as well as the, the compost tea itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fraught with bristling conundrums. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, at the end of the day, to me, everyone needs to just try their own, um, try it themselves, see how it works in their environment. And I think it, it yeah. for the majority of people, it's yeah. gonna, if you're making it correctly, you know, using good inputs, you're going to see a positive benefit, but I don't, I don't ever lead with that assumption or I would never say it's going to cure your fusarium or keep you from getting powdery mildew or some of the other things that I've heard around it. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. I but agree. this, I agree. You and I are not that far <laughs> off. I, it's funny how we all kind of fall into our little spots as we, as we grow and it yeah. changes. And I think that that's, what's exciting about it and adding this, this book team with bacteria just brings a whole nother layer into this. That's, uh, I think really exciting. So I, I appreciate you for, for writing this book. Right. Right. And you know, it also, it also explains some of the reasons why things don't work. Uh, you know, I mean, so, uh, who, who knew that you had to have the right kind of bacteria to get the, the fixation that you want? You know, I mean, who knew it's now, now we're getting a little better understanding. So there'll be many other books on this subject coming, I'm sure. Uh, and, and, and we'll know we're successful. Uh, we, we know we're successful with regard to soil food web stuff because it's what people study now when they go to college. They study the soil food web when they study soil science, you know, and we'll know we're successful when the rhizophagy cycle is part of that study. Uh, and when, when we see it in articles and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's fascinating. I don't know how much time you want to waste on this stuff, but this year there's been a proliferation of articles about you you don't need to rake your leaves in the fall. Now, to me, that's soil food web science in practical application in everyday life. You don't need to rake your leaves because the microbes will break them down because they're valuable to feed your lawns, to feed your gardens, uh, and, 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 and you don't need to, even better, you don't need to use that polluting uh, blower, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is practical application of soil food web stuff. Uh, and, and I love it. I love seeing it. And if you, if you haven't seen those articles, you'll now be aware of them. And I guarantee you in the next week or so, you'll see an Associated Press article or something as you, you know, some clickbait article about don't mm-hmm. rake your leaves. Here's why. And it's, it's soil food web. Uh, wow. I love it. I love it. A couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, when, when Apple came out with the, uh, uh, I think it was the pencil, the Apple pencil, uh, the iPad that they were using had a soil food web diagram on it. Wow! Mm-hmm. You know, so, so this is really kind of fun. It's just fun to watch it all become real. Uh, we know it's real. Uh, you know, we've been thanking Dr. Elaine and, and now Dr. James White, uh, uh, you know, but now everybody gets to do it. It's really, it's, it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the leaf things make sense to me. You're creating a natural layer of mulch. You know, every time the plant drops that leaves and you yeah. remove it, you're removing nutrients and organic matter from the environment that unless you're replacing it, it's, it's not a closed loop system. That being said. Right. It's a law yeah. of return. You're, you're violating the law of return. Yeah. The one place I wouldn't want to do that is in controlled environment agriculture. So if we're talking to cannabis growers indoors, I would still suggest removing your leaves um, from the environment. From Just from a disease perspective, um, but right. again, very right. different. But I would use them, but I, but, but I would use, yeah, it is very different, but I would use them in the compost uh, pile uh, and then use that compost 
in growing that cannabis. Sure, you could you could absolutely sure compost, it compost it, thermally compost it. Absolutely, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, that's 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 what I would do. And I and I think you could you can also vermicompost it as well if it turns out that vermicompost is better for your particular strain of cannabis. That, and it may be that vermicompost is better for all cannabis. I don't know. We need to do that. Wouldn't this. remove the disease though, risk, right? Oh, wait a minute. You don't? Oh, yeah. I think it does. The only, what doesn't remove the disease risk for, to me is anaerobic. You know, a lot of the anaerobic mixtures can potentially have the diseases in it. But, but yeah, you put it through a worm. I'm pretty sure it doesn't have the diseases anymore. I haven't heard that. I'll have to do some more research on that one. Yeah, well, we're gonna, uh, you know, folks, look it up before you take my word for anything. <laughs> but, but, I, but, but, you know, I've been using vermicompost on, on on food products and cannabis for years. Yeah, you probably had good starting inputs, though. I feel like I, I would be nervous. That's all. Well, you, I, some of the poisons that I cook with, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just want to say, yeah. Jeff, it's it's always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you face to face here in the not too distant future. Um, yeah, we should definitely, definitely, you know, I, this post COVID stuff. We need to start having these, uh, you know, these confabs again where we can get together. And of course, the cannabis science is available, and, you know, every year. And, uh, those are good conferences, and where we can kick some of this stuff around and and, and stimulate other people. Uh, to do more research to improve upon what's already been discovered. Totally agree. Well, thank you again so much for your time today. Um, for this book, I'll have links on the podcast page for folks that want to check it out. Um, and uh, I hope people will go out and, and read your book and, yeah, and hey, start doing their own experimenting and research. Sure. Right. And if they want, and if they want to contact me, I, 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 I I'm a transparency, uh, Jeff at gardener.com, particularly interested in hearing about your research. Uh, but if you got questions to ask, I, I don't answer immediately always, but, but go ahead and I, I shouldn't say this on Tad show cause you have so many listeners, but, uh, yeah, you know, we'll try to answer the questions. And if I don't know, I'll tell you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Well, have a good rest of the day and, uh, we'll talk soon. Oh, you bet. And say hello to the family. That was Jeff Lowenfels, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. If you want to support the podcast, check out the wider range of products we offer on our website, ranging from soils, amendments, beneficial insects, sticky cards, soil test analysis, and consulting. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.